in uh, Matthew chapter 13. Lo and behold, Matthew 13, a new chapter for us. I will go ahead and say that uh, today's message uh, will be kind of introductory for quite a few weeks, the next several weeks, um, as we'll work our way through Matthew 13, going through the book of Matthew. Uh, Hey, worship team, thank you for throwing that together this morning, probably about 20, 15, 20 minutes before service. I think they threw that together. <laughs> you know better than that. Um, well, thank you, guys. The Lord has just been really good to us in our music recently. Uh, I don't know about you, but um, I pray for that, and I'm very thankful when he meets with us. Uh, he's just been doing that recently, and so praise the Lord. Certainly, we miss Chris today, and uh, I'm glad he's able to get a little break uh, looking forward to him being back next week. But these, these guys did a great job this morning. Miss Faye, you know how I said I was going to save my voice in the sing? Yeah, well, that didn't happen. So if I lose my voice, it's their fault for picking such songs as that. Because uh, it's hard to sing those at half volume as much as you try. All right, Matthew chapter 13. Uh, just before we read that, can I make a couple of announcements? Um, one... Here's the main one. Let me just, I guess, make this announcement. Uh, we'll not have adult services this Wednesday, uh, but the next week we'll be doing that. So let's target the 18th, and we meet in the fellowship hall. And, uh, of course, Brandon's able to watch any children that need to be watched that night. So not this week, the 11th, but the 18th. Okay, let's target that. That's at 6.30 on Wednesday, the 18th. I think that's all. Seemed like there was something else, but I didn't write it down. That's all right. All right, Matthew chapter 13, just before we read the text, uh, it's a long one this week, and I'll go ahead and tell you we're not going to preach through all 17 verses. Um, we're going to end up not dealing with kind of the middle verses. We're going to touch on the first ones, read through but not deal with the, the middle ones today, ultimately spending most of our time in the last eight verses. Where we left off last week, the second half of that, Jesus is in a house He's teaching and preaching. His family, his mother and his brothers, have come. In essence, looking at the other Gospels, they're going to straighten him out. And I'd never really thought of that that way, and you'd have to go back and listen to last week's message. But we know that his family had not put their faith and trust in Jesus as Savior. And they think he's kind of going too far, and they're coming to reel him in. But it's so crowded in the house, they can't get in. So they have to wait outside. So the people come in and tell the Lord, your family's outside and they want to speak to you. And he says, who is my mother? In other words, like, who is Mary? Is Mary better than these? These people are my disciple. These people have believed in me. They're following me. They're learning from me. She's not better than them. My brothers, who is James and Joseph and, and Simon and Jude? Are they like better than these? They're not following me yet. Praise the Lord, they do put their faith in Christ eventually. But he makes a very much of a distinction between the ones who are inside and those who are outside. And now we're going to see a transition take place from the house. And then our whole chapter ultimately is going to be filled with parables. So we've not really dealt with a lot of those, but that's what chapter 13. So there's five discourses. If you look at the book of Matthew, there's five major discourses. We've covered two of them. Of course, the biggest is the Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 13 is the middle one. Here we go. So he's in the house teaching. That same day, Jesus went out of the house. So he leaves. I'm going to assume he talked to his family. 
They must have tried to straighten him out. What successful, he's on a mission of his father's business. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. So he literally goes and he sits beside the sea. It's very different, as you'll see here in a moment, the way they did it there. It's, it's a cultural thing. It's not a right or a wrong. We're not doing the wrong thing today. But you guys notice that I'm the one that's standing and you guys are all seated. Well, they did it reversed in that day. Their rabbis sat to teach, right? So you'll notice the scene. He leaves the house and he goes and sits beside the sea. And great crowds, verse 2, great crowds gathered about him. And I believe this means great crowds, very large crowds are gathering about him. How great of a crowd. It's so much gathering about him that the Bible says, so that, meaning it was to that degree, so that he got into a boat. It's almost as if they've run him off the shore. He's having to go out into the, quote, Sea of Galilee, which is actually a lake, the Lake of Gennesaret. It has multiple names. So it's freshwater lake. So that he got into a boat and sat down. So now he's out in the water, again, seated. Of course, you don't want to be standing in a boat. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. So they kind of got a natural amphitheater set up there, right? So there's no doubt a slope to the, to the ground. As they're on the beach, Jesus is out in a boat, and he's seated. He's seated. Verse 3, and he told them many things in parables. And right off the bat, our text, Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and this was no doubt the first parable that Jesus spoke, Matthew gives this one. He taught them many things, so this crowd, he taught them many things in parables, saying, a sower went out to sow, a farmer. So picture this as we do it. You're already picturing Jesus, hopefully, by the sea. He's out in a boat. He's talking back to the shore. A large crowd is standing. And some have even offered that there was a sower nearby that they could have looked at. Who knows? But a sower, a farmer, he's got his bag, he's got his seed, and he's going out to sow on his property. Verse 4, as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. So all of the land, some would say these would be rows. Others would say all of the fields are separated by these paths. And this is where people walk. And the paths would separate one person's field from another or multiple fields. And you have to get around. So as he's sowing, no doubt some bounces up on the path. Some seeds fell along the path. Jesus continues and says, and the birds came and devoured them. He's sowing seed. Seed falls on the path. Here come the birds. They devour other seeds fell on rocky ground. Do not envision gravelly ground, but literally ground that has large rocks underneath the surface. Verse 8, other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately, and the idea quickly, they, these seeds, sprang up. Why is it so quickly up? The idea is more quickly than the other soils. So immediately these seeds sprang up. Here's the reason why. Since they had no depth of soil, the energy, since it can't go downward, there's rocks just below the surface, it's sending the energy upward. So again, verse 8, other seeds fell on rocky ground and where they did not have much soil and immediately sprang up since they had no depth, but that presents a problem. When the sun rose, they, these seeds and this, these shoots, were scorched. Why? Since they had no root, they withered away. That doesn't help the farmer. 
the seeds that got picked up by the birds. That doesn't help the farmer. Verse 7. Other seeds fell among thorns. So maybe, maybe not. We're not real sure. But let's just say he had done the typical style of farming where he had plowed the land before planting the seed. And in that plowed ground, there's also seeds of thorns. Well, some of the good seed falls in among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. They're robbing all of the sunlight. They're robbing the water, and they're taking up all of the nutrients out of the soil. They just choke out this good seed. Praise the Lord. Verse 8, other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain. Some, these numbers are off the charts, some a hundredfold some 60, some 30. I'll look into this more this coming week, Lord willing, as we'll come back and look at those verses. But one that I do remember, I'm not standing by this. We may change it next week. But an expected number would be if you have a bushel of grain and you use those as seeds, if you were to get eight bushels back out of that, then that's a good return. Here he says, on the good ground here, some returned a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. Verse 9 is the only command, I think, in the text. I think this is the only command uh, in, in our text. He who has ears, the idea of he who has ears to hear, to discern, let him hear. That would apply to us. So, Jeff, if you don't hurry up, finish reading. I'm getting ready to check out. No, no, no. Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, he who has ears, let him hear. Process this, meditate on this, think about the lesson. Yeah, that's a nice story about a farmer. What's the point? Don't miss the point. Verse 10. I think, I don't know that these guys, maybe they were in the boat with the Lord, maybe. And maybe this happens right there. I don't think so. I think Matthew is bringing something that's going to happen a little later to the front of the chapter so that it lays the groundwork for the rest of the chapter on these parables. Watch what happens. This is going to be where we spend most of our time today. Then the so Jesus goes to the shore. He's teaching with parables. At some point, the disciples came and said to him, "Why do you speak to them in parables?" I don't know the tone. Is it just generally a question, or is there a little bit of attitude in this? Why do you speak to them in parables? And so here we go. Here we go. In answer to their question, he answered them, "To you." It has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. Why do you speak to them in parables? Guys, I am not harming the text when I plant a word in your mind, but we're going to read the text. Some translations would even include this word. The SV doesn't here. Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, word I'm going to supply, because to you... It has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them, it has not been given. If that's not confusing enough, here comes verse 12. For to the one who has. So here's one who has. They have it. They have what they need. To the one who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. So he has gets more, has an abundance. But, so there's to the ones who have, notice this preposition, but from the one who has not. They have, they're going to get more, they'll have an abundance. They do not have from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken 
We just want to know why you're talking to them in parables. What's, what's this? What are we supposed to do with that? Verse 13. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing. Watch. Seeing. They do not see. I speak to them in parables because seeing they do see. But they do not. Can I just supply another little word here? Not harming the t- They do not really see. Continues. And hearing, they hear. Hearing, they do not hear. They do not really hear. Nor do they understand. There's the answer to the question. Here's another answer. Indeed, Jesus says, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. That says, you guys remember Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up in the temple. The seraphim are flying around. They're saying, holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty. We sang that just a while ago. Ultimately, the Lord says, whom shall we send? Who will go for us? Isaiah, rebuked, realized he's a man of unclean lips, says, I'll do it if you'll send me. And then God gives Isaiah this strange assignment that outwardly looks very unsuccessful, but it's the will of God for Isaiah's ministry. Verse 14 again. Jesus says, you want to know why I preach to them in parables? Teach them in parables? Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says... You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. Why? For this people, still Isaiah, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Unquote from Isaiah. Two more verses. Now Jesus focuses back on his disciples who had asked this question, and he says the following. But blessed, so that's why I'm talking to them in parables, but blessed are your eyes, for they see. The idea, they really see. And your ears are blessed, for they hear, they really hear. And then one last verse. For truly, he says to his apostles, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people. Hey, these are the good guys. Many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. That's why he says in verse 16, you're blessed. Would you notice with me two main things this morning? Number one, out of verses one through three, would you notice there's a change of crowd, venue, and style? Excuse me, there's a change of crowd, venue, and style. So what's happening? Jesus is teaching in a house. He moves from the house. He goes down to the sea. As he's going, the makeup of the crowd is now changing. The size of the crowd has changed. Do you remember who's on the inside? Remember his family who are not yet believers. They're on the outside. Guys, I can't say for certain as we've been preaching through chapter 12, are the Pharisees, maybe some of the Pharisees were in this house. All I know is it's really crowded in the house, so much so that Jesus' family can't get in. So they end up moving, and man, the crowd only gets really large after that. 
But while they're moving and heading down to the sea, this change of venue from house to sea, all of a sudden the size of the crowd and the makeup of the crowd changes. In the house, predominantly Jesus' disciples. Down by the sea, people, a mix, all kinds of people. No doubt some enemies, some just curious onlookers, some first-time listeners, some people just like, I just want to get healed. And some just like, I just want some food. And others like, I, I'm about to believe you. And there's just a lot of mix. And guys, I, I'm, I'm telling you, because of this change of crowd and the change of venue, which leads to the change of crowd, here's what happens. There's a whole new style of teaching. And Jesus is thus going to change to parables. It's so crowded. Now, what I'm about to say, I don't know for sure. I don't think we're talking about hundreds of people. You say, Jeff, you think there's less than hundreds? No, no, no. I think we are literally talking about thousands of people. Do you guys realize we're just a chapter away from Jesus is going to feed 5,000? He's going to feed 5,000 what? Men, males. That's not counting. So you say, Jeff, do you believe there's 5,000? I don't know if there's 5,000 males and 10, 15, 20,000 people. I don't know that that's what's on the shore, but that's the kind of crowds he's starting to draw. You may think, well, Jeff, man, I can't imagine. It's, it's hard to sell out the Bon Secours Arena and 18,000 people. But remember, Galilee was more densely populated than upstate South Carolina. What Jesus is offering is free. It's not like you have to pay to go to the concert. And what he's doing is a whole lot more valuable than listening to a concert. So this would be nothing for him to draw thousands of people. It's so crowded, he has to get into a boat. That becomes his platform out on the water. And apparently, the sound amplification that comes naturally on water is what he's using to speak to thousands of people. I know my voice cannot speak to hundreds of people. And we're not told that Jesus has this divine voice that was so clear to everyone. It's like, oh, well, that's obviously God. Let's just listen to him talk. He can talk to 20,000 people in natural voice. No, he needs the sound amplification of the water. He's a man and God. So then he starts teaching in parables. So just before we leave our first point, let's touch on this. What are these parables since we're going to be looking at them for the next four or five weeks? The word parable comes from two words, parable, parable, right? Para means alongside. So watch, it means alongside. A parachurch organization is a ministry that works alongside the church, helps the church, partners with the church. It's not necessarily the church, it's alongside. Parable, so the second part of the word means to lay or to place. So here's a parable. It means to lay or place something alongside something else. Here's a parable. A parable is when you have an unknown. You're wanting to teach a group of people an unknown. They don't know this. So how do you teach it? You can use a parable. What is that? You bring something that is known, that is common, and you lay it beside the unknown. So that, with, listen, let's all use this common thing. You know this? Oh, yeah, I understand that. So you want to use something of the time, something that people can relate with. If someone knows nothing about molasses, and you say, man, that person's slow as molasses, they don't get it. But if someone's up from like Vermont and Maine, and you say, man, that guy's slow as molasses, oh, he's really slow then. They get that. That connects, right? So you're going to put something common beside the unknown, so something known and common. Why? To help make this known. So what's a parable? You guys have heard this slightly different. Can I offer it this way? A parable, a biblical parable, as you've heard many times, is an earthly story with a spiritual meaning. 
It's an earthly story, a common, something we can relate with that has a spiritual meaning. We don't want to miss the spiritual meaning. So look at verse 9. We're not going to deal with verses 3 through 8 in full today, but do look at verse 9. He who has ears, Jesus says, let him hear. So guys, I just want to, before we look at the second point, let me ask you. Had you been on the bank, on the beach that morning, and you heard Jesus talking about, hey, there's this sower, and he's sowing the seed, and some of it falls on the path, and the birds come and eat it up, and other seed falls on this very shallow ground that has a big rock underneath of it, and it shoots up really quickly, but ultimately it gets scorched because it doesn't have a root system. When the sun comes and burns it, it doesn't really have any fruit to it. Other seed fell among these thorns, and it ends up getting choked out by the thorns. It doesn't produce anything. But this other seed falls on this good ground, and it produces at 100-fold, 60-fold, 30-fold. If you were standing there that day and the Lord says, he who has ears to hear, he who has discernment, take time to process what I said. Pause real quick. If you were there that day and you do not have the Holy Spirit in you like they did not, would you get this point? Without looking at verses 18 to 23, if we just pause and said, so-and-so, come on up and tell us what you think the point is. Uh, well, I guess there's a farmer. <laughs> He's out sowing seed. What is the seed? What is this type of ground? What is this type of ground? What's the point? Some of you, I realize, you're like, oh, I've heard this taught on before, and I have actually read verses 18 to 23. Okay, but if you didn't have that, would you know? Can I tell you this? The disciples appear to be struggling to understand that, and the Lord's going to have to give them an explanation. Here's my main point, and we're going to number two. Oh, how reliant we are on the Holy Spirit to teach us the things of God. He who has ears to hear, let him perceive. But Lord, I'm going to have to have your Holy Spirit tell me what this means. It sounds like a just story about a farmer. I don't get the point. Number two. The purpose of Jesus' parables, literally this is the title of our message this morning because that's where we're going to spend most of our time. It's in verses 10 to 17. Look at verse 10. The disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Hey guys, a thoughtful speaker is always going to try to adjust not their message but the style of the message, the delivery, the direction, how to arrive, how much of the message to give. They're always going to adjust that based on their crowd. I should speak differently to you than I would years ago to my 7th grade Bible class. I would speak differently to my senior Bible class than I would my 7th grade. If I were teaching junior church this morning, I would be teaching them differently than you. If I were doing the toddlers, the, the, the little new walkers, we try to give them things from the Word of God. I wouldn't go in there and talk at all like this right now. I would adjust to my audience. I'm wondering, is there an attitude? Lord, why are you talking to them like that? You know they're not getting hardly any of what you're saying. Lord, your parables are just hard to understand compared to just straight talk. Just talk to them. You've used parabolic sayings with us before, but you just speak straight to us. Why don't you just do that with them? What's going on? And I think the Lord gives four reasons why he uses parables to the crowd. And so let's study those this morning. Number one, Jesus' parables were a response to blindness. Jesus' parables were a response to blindness. Look at verse number 13. Lord, why are you teaching them in parables? This is why I speak to them in parables. Here it comes. Because seeing they do not see and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. That's why I have to speak to them in parables. I am not belittling this text. So I've got like 
eight verses. I am not belittling verse 13. I'm going to propose to you my opinion. This is the surface answer. Here's the surface answer. Here's the basic surface answer. You want to know why I'm talking to them in parables? Because they don't perceive spiritual things. So I'm needing to speak to them in parables. They don't perceive things. You want me to talk to them like I talk to you? They don't receive and understand like you guys do. I have to do this. They don't perceive things spiritually. Now work with me. You guys know as well as I do that one of the reasons that we will use figurative language with someone is because if we feel that they cannot understand what we're teaching, then maybe that's a time that we would use figurative language. About a month ago, I had a little girl. Her and her family go to our church. They're part of our Graceview family. I think she's five. Uh, Caroline, is Caroline five? So Caroline Rice is five years old. So she's getting ready to have a surgery. So we were spending time with them a little bit. And she asked a question. It's a very similar question that her older sister had asked a couple of years ago when she was about that same age. And so Caroline just wants to know. And Meredith says, well, go ask him. And so, yeah, why did God make the devil? Why would he make the devil? Obviously implied in that, she's confessing she believes God made everything. And she's also implying that God knows everything. So putting two, two, two together, she's like, since God made everything and since God uh, knows everything and he had to know that when he made the devil, he was going to be the devil, why would he do that? And she's five years old. And so I lit into this answer that was very similar to what we did about two weeks ago on a Wednesday night. And I covered about three or four minutes of it. Gave her a lot of things. We talked about the purposes of God and the moral will of God and the, the, the guaranteed, uh, established, stated purposes of God that would even be big. Went into all of that. But ultimately, you know where I finished? She just so happened to have an acorn in her hand. And I said, well, actually, Caroline, said, it's kind of like that acorn. I said, you know how if you've never seen a tree, we would have no idea what that acorn can become? We don't yet see, if we only have ever seen an acorn, we don't understand what the fuller picture is going to be. So I ended up taking a minute or two and trying to say that the plan of God, the full plan of God is not yet known. It's kind of like that acorn, what it can become. It could end up being like one of those huge trees out in your backyard. What was I doing? I don't know that she was fully tracking with all these theological things that I was saying. So I tried to say, you know what? Ultimately, we're going to see what becomes of this and God is going to get glory even out of making the devil. What's Jesus' point in verse 13? I think it's this. You want to know why I talk to these people in parables? Because they, watch, they get the facts of God's truth. They get the facts. I say this often. But they do not understand the truths of God. They get the facts of their, what we call the Old Testament, their Bible. They know those facts, but they don't understand the truths that a person has to really know deep down within themselves to ultimately trust in Jesus Christ. And the Lord's saying, they're not doing that. So can I offer my opinion? Let me offer my opinion. You'll need to write quickly because I'm going to go right into the second point. Um, verse 13 and 14, here's my opinion. They state the fact of their lack of perception, the crowd's lack of perception. Verse 13, 14 states the fact of it. But what it doesn't say is why do they have a lack of perception? Why is their lack of perception existing? And so that's why I'm going to propose to you this morning that verses 11 and 15 are key because they tell us why the lack of perception exists. Verse 13, 
Basic surface sense. You want to know why I speak to them in parables? Because they're spiritually blind. It's all they can handle. Why are they spiritually blind? Why do they lack spiritual perception? Oh, well, now for that, we're going to need to go to verse 11 and 15. And you'll notice today, uh, I'm taking little liberties with the text. I'm not going in the order of the verses. We'll cover it, but I'm not going in the order given. So number one, we hit verse 13. Number two, let's find out why they have a lack of perception. Number two, Jesus' parables were also a judgment to some. Jesus' parables were a judgment to some. Look at verse 14. Let's build to 15. Everybody got their Bibles open? Got your, got your eyes or your spiritual eyes working for you today? Verse number 14. In answer to their question, Jesus says, Indeed, in their case, this crowd of his day, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. Guys, it's this simple. You want to know I'm talking to them in parables? Because Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 6 was fulfilled 600 and some years ago in the people of his day in Israel. And now this crowd today, they are refulfilling Isaiah chapter 6's prophecy. And it goes something like this. You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. Why? Verse 15. For this people's heart has grown dull. With their eyes they can barely hear. Here it comes. And their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. He says if they would hear and see and understand and turn, if those dominoes would hit like that, the Lord says I would heal them. But they will not really see and really hear. They will not understand and they will not turn because they've already got these fat, full, dull hearts and they've just closed their eyes. Jesus says, I'm speaking to them in parables because their hearts are dull and they've closed their eyes to seeing the truth of God. Can I offer real quickly, what is this hearts are dull? Let me give you two ideas. One, one I just alluded to. Dull, not sharp. Their hearts, not meaning this muscle, their core being is not sharp. It's not focused on God. It's not focused on the things of God. Listen, another word for this dull heart actually means fat. Not, again, not the muscle, not physical. It means like full What's these people's problem? Their heart is full. Their heart is fat. Their heart is satisfied. It was in Isaiah's day. It's in Jesus' day. Here's what, satisfied, full of what? In Isaiah's day, they were full of idolatry. We don't need God. We're well satisfied and full on these other types of religions and this false religion and this demonic worship and these idols. We're full on that. We don't need God. In Jesus' day, it's this, oh, we've got our own theology, we've got our own religion, we have our own belief system, we've got our own version of truth, we're full, we don't need anything else. And the Lord says, for that, I'm, not, I'm just going to teach you in parables. And then he says, they have closed their eyes. I'm thinking of two reasons why someone would close their eyes, again, not literally, but figuratively. Why would someone close their eyes against the truth of God? One is this, it just disinterests me. I'm disinterested. I see that from time to time. I'll be teaching and preaching, and you can tell someone's just like, 
And then they tune in. Oh, that's funny. Now, yeah, I like the funny stuff. And I like the gory stuff. Ooh, and the scary stuff. And I like it when Jeff's loud and when he screams and hollers. What was it? Now, what's he talking about? I'm listening now. I kind of lost interest for a little. Yeah, you're kind of like the crowd. Another one is not just disinterested, like, yeah, that doesn't really grab me. I'm waiting for something that, that I feel is relevant. Here's another one. Not only disinterested, I just I don't like it. So they just close their eyes. You ever seen someone? Are you this person? It may get uncovered before this service is over. You encounter a clear, cannot escape, can't escape it. The Bible clearly says something. It's right there. And you know what we'll do? I don't like it. So I'm just going to close my eyes to that truth. I don't like that truth. I like my version of the truth. And the Lord says, and that's why I'm going to speak to them in parables. The reason they're spiritually blind it's because they refuse to listen to my truth. They refuse to accept my truth. So you're going to get parables. Notice verse 12. Look at verse number 12. For, here's the answer to the question. For to the one who has, more will be given. So we've got two groups of people. We've got the haves and the have-nots. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. Okay. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So the one who has is going to get more and have an abundance. The one who doesn't have, even the little they do have, it's going to get taken away because of the response that they have. Let me give you two applications of that and then the interpretation. So I'm going to go a little backwards. You ready? One is just to help us, a little parabolic statement, right? So watch. Here's a person. They work real hard. Everybody with me? These work real hard. They work hard and they're wise with their money. Over here's a person who doesn't work hard. And they're not wise with their money. Or they work hard, but they're not wise with their money. This one works hard, wise with the money. This one either is, does not work hard and is not wise with their money or works hard, but is not wise with their money. Finish this statement. It's been said that success breeds... Say it confidently. Success breeds success. This person who works hard and is wise with their money, what happens? They get more money. Now, what do they do with it? We say, well, they probably go blow it now. No, no, no. <laughs> They're wise with their money. So they reinvest, and they work with it some more, and they get more money. And they reinvest it, and they get more money. It's what some people say. The rich keep getting richer. Right, because they're working hard and they're wise with it and they get more and more and more. And the Lord says, the one who has is going to be given more and they're going to have this abundance. Now, over here, things are different. Not only does it apply to money, sorry to pull this. I promise it was in my notes before all three of our local teams lost yesterday. I do not mean it. In college sports, the teams that win the most, do you notice they seem to get the best recruits? Isn't that amazing? The be they win over there. You notice the best, best recruits don't go to where they lose all the time. They go to where they win a lot. Do y'all know what happens when the best recruits all go to the same school? They win a lot. You say, well, wait a minute. Which is, yeah, they win a lot, which brings in more recruits and more winning and more recruits. And it's just like success breeds success. Now, here's the point. What Jesus is saying in verse number 12 is the following. I want you to hear it, and then we'll write it. Everybody listen. Those who listen intently 
to the Word of God. Here's what Christ is telling His disciples and the difference between them and the crowd. Those who listen intently to the Word of God with desire and with faith. I believe that's the Word of God. I want to know the Word of God. And those who respond to the revelation, the unfolding, the clarification, the giving of, of understanding of the Word of God, they respond to that in obedience. So they don't just want to know, they want to have it impact their life. Their life is changed. Let's say it again. They intently listen to the Word of God with desire and with faith. I believe it's the Word of God. I don't know if that guy up there is saying it rightly, but if, if he's rightly dividing it, I, I hope the Holy Spirit will help me because I want to know what it really says. And if he's not saying it right, Holy Spirit, show me where he's wrong. But I believe this is the Word of God, and I want to know the Word of God. And when God reveals it to you, you start putting it in the life. I'll tell you what will happen to that person. They will be given more insight to the Word of God by God. You know what happens when you get more insight to the Word of God? It builds your faith. It creates new desire. It results in more obedience. You know what happens when you get that? More desire. More faith. More obedience. That cycle is called sanctification. The flip side of that is what Jesus is talking about, this other group of people. So just as those who have those qualities get more and more and more through life, guarantee you, I promise you guys, those who approach the Word of God with doubt, I don't know, I like a lot of parts of the Bible, but I go more with public opinion. And if science ever says something that looks like it goes against it, I'm going with science because we've got some really good science today. And I'm going to go with what mom and dad say or the teacher over at the school says down at the university. All right, if you do that, the people who approach the Word of God with doubt or, watch, just listen lazily. People who listen to the Word of God lazily and with doubt and who refuse to obey it when they hear it, what they'll find is even what they thought they once understood to a degree all of a sudden now that's unclear and that's unsure well of course you're doubting what you once thought you believed because you're constantly questioning the word of God and you're not obedient to the word of God and you don't have a desire for the word of God it's just kind of got boring to it so no wonder you now question what you used to believe it is now unsure and unclear to you before we hit the third point I wonder if I'm describing anyone this morning. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal this to you if it is you. Is there anyone here right now that if we were talking in private and you were just being 100% honest would say, Jeff, want me to be honest? I've tried this whole church thing for years. I don't get it. It's nice. You folks are nice. Please don't take me wrong, Jeff. You've got some nice people down there and I like the atmosphere. Really friendly. And I like the music, but frankly, the only reason I really keep coming is to make so-and-so happy. I don't get the whole church thing. I don't get the message of the Bible. If that is you, you say, I've tried it. I'm telling you, I've tried it. I just, I don't really get it. Can I ask you two questions? You be honest with yourself. Question number one, what have you been doing with what you do understand? You say, I just don't get the message of the Bible. What have you been doing with what you do understand? Second question, do you, here's, here's the big one, do you respond in obedience to what you know the Bible says? 
Do you respond in obedience? I'm going to give you the answer. No, you don't. You say, you don't know me. You don't know if I respond. Nope. If your thing is, I've tried this whole church thing for years and years, and I've listened to Bible teaching and preaching, and I just don't get it. I don't understand the Bible. I couldn't tell you what the main message of the Scripture is. I've tried. I'm about to give it up. I'm getting ready to tell you the reason you don't understand it is because you do not respond obediently to what the Lord has given you. You say, where in the world are you getting that from? How are you, who are you to tell me? Okay, go to John chapter 7. Glad you asked. Go to John 7. Flip over there. John chapter 7. I don't have time to go into all of the build-up to this text. Jesus, Jesus is teaching in the temple. He's taking a big risk. His enemies are all around. They already want to arrest him at this point in John. I think John is further ahead, even though he's only in chapter 7, than we are in chapter 13 of Matthew. He's already further ahead in the life of Christ. So he's teaching. And a crazy thing happens. The enemies of Jesus are astounded. They're, and I think they really are asking questions. Hey, where does he get this information? Has he been in one of our schools? Somebody speak up. Is this a former student? How does he know his letters like this? This is impossible. Nowhere else around the world do they teach the things of we Jews. This is our religion. We're the ones who have the scripture. Where is he getting this ability? And then Jesus goes on and says, it's not my message. I'm only giving the message of the one who sent me. He's constantly trying to tell them that my father sent me. You won't receive the message, but I'm trying to give you his message. Look at verse 17. It is key. Jesus says, so here's like a, a, a statement of doctrine I believe stands on its own. Jesus says, if anyone's will, their will, is to do God's will, your will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. You see what Christ is saying? Look at it one more time. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Can I slightly adjust that and say that if a person approaches the Scripture and their will is, God, watch you show me, I will respond in obedience. I will put this into my life. The Lord is going to start showing you things if you truly mean that. What he's saying is, our understanding of his truth is directly connected to our obedience, our will to obey that truth. Hey, guys, the Bible is not a theoretical book to be debated. It is a spiritual word of God. It is a spiritual book that is to be lived out practically. Do you know a lot of people listen to the Bible with no understanding because they have no intentions of actually putting it into their life. I'll evaluate it, and if I like it, I'll put some parts of my life, and the rest I'll just leave. God's going to keep his word closed to you. He will keep it closed to you. And that's why Jesus is saying the crowd gets parables because they've been living with a closed stance toward the truth of God. Number three, why do you preach to them in parables because they have blindness number two because they have blindness because they have refused to hear the word of God and so it's an act of judgment against them and then number three Jesus's parables display God's sovereignty and now we need to go back to verse 11 so would you look with me Matthew chapter 13 verse 11 before we get into the actual answer we have to deal with one quick word so look at verse 11. Why do you talk to them in parables? Here's the answer. 
Again, because to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. I speak to them in parables because to you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Y'all know the word I have to deal with first, right? Secrets. What are these secrets? It's not like the Masons. The higher you go up, the more secrets you get to learn. And you get all kind of blah, blah, blah. Okay. If you're in that, get out of that. That's a bunch of nonsense. Okay? Anything that has to have no windows, where you can't, that, we're not even planning on saying that. If you can't have windows where people can see what you're doing and everything's all secret. Okay, we want you to know the deep secrets and mysteries of God here. It's right there in the Word of God. So if you're in that nonsense, get out of that. They're up to no good. Right? And they're totally wrong on the theology, everything I've ever heard. Why am I going into that? It is what it is. All right. Verse 11. Secrets. So hold on, Jeff. What are these secrets? Guys, everybody listen. The secrets are the hidden mysteries of God. Watch. The mysteries about God himself and his plan that were hidden in the Old Testament. They're there, but they're covered. They're veiled. You're only getting little snapshots. You're not getting the full picture. They're hidden in the Old Testament, but they're made known by Christ. And because Christ made them known to the apostles, they're made known by Christ and his apostles to us in the New Testament. They're hidden in the Old Testament, things about God and his plan, hidden in the Old Testament, made known to Christ. Here we have them in the Gospels. And in his apostles write these things called the epistles that make up the rest of the New Testament. So these mysteries are actually made known to us in the Word of God. Why do we have them? Because Jesus says to his apostles, it's given to you to know the hidden secret mysteries. You say, well, Jeff, like, what are these? Let me give you three as a sample. Three. Here's one. The nature of Jesus the Christ. That the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, would be a man. A literal man. But he wouldn't only be a man. He would be the, literally the eternal son of God. Blended into one person. That, it was there in the Old Testament. But it wasn't super clear. It's made very clear in the New Testament. Here's the second one. That the way to be saved and the only way to be saved for the last 2,000 years is by putting your faith and trust in the cross death of that Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. That's the only way of salvation. It has to be in his cross death and his resurrection that happened on the third day. You must believe in that to pay for your sins. It was there in the Old Testament. It's really clear in the New Testament. Here's a third one. This is a big one. The church... The church, we have this kingdom of God. Do you know the Old Testament prophets knew a whole lot more about the thousand-year reign of Christ and some clues moving on into eternity? They knew hardly anything about this thing we call the church that is part of the kingdom of God in place right now, especially its Gentile inclusion. We could even say Gentile-dominated church currently. But it's not just Jewish. It's Jews and Gentiles on equal footing preceding the final phases of the, quote, kingdom of God. And so Jesus is saying, guys, it's given to you to know those things. It's not given to them to know. It's given to you to know the, the essential truths to become a Christian. It's not given to them. What? And this is where some people this morning are going to close their eyes to the truth of God. And this is where I've made a choice. I'm just going to say what the Scripture says, and we're just going to accept it. And if we don't like it, do what you want to do with it. And there are some things in the Bible I don't like. But I'm not going to let the things that I don't like cause me to not believe them. 
So I'm going to believe them. And the more I find that when I believe them and accept them and understand them, they actually, the Lord starts causing them to become very precious doctrines to me. Verse 11. Why do you preach to them in parables? To you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. To them it's not been given. Would you take this note? It's tried to word it accurately. So let's go ahead and have it on the screen. Verse 11 reveals there is not only a refusal to hear God's truth by some. That was the second point, And they got judged for it. Guys, there's not only a refusal to hear God's truth by some. There is also an inability to perceive it by all. There's an ability, an inability to perceive God's truth by all people. All people, no one can perceive God's truth on their own. Could I say it this way? Not only did the crowds not perceive spiritual truth, they refused to perceive it. Could I say it this way? They, watch, they would not perceive spiritual truth. They closed their eyes and their hearts fat and full on other things. They would not receive spiritual truth. Not only would they not, they could not. They could not. Perceive spiritual truth. Why? It wasn't given to them. It wasn't given to them. Jeff, what do you mean? Well, write this down. Spiritual truth is impossible for any human being to understand apart from God helping us. Some were given that. The rest were not given that. You say, right, they're being judged because they, their hearts were full and they closed their eyes. Absolutely true. Then what does verse 11 mean? It sounds like it's saying that they didn't do that because they couldn't. Yep, it's absolutely true too. So wait a minute. Then it's not their fault. Oh, it is their fault. But wait, if at the judgment God does this without giving them that ability, then it's not, no, they will pay for their sins that they deserve. But the point being here is no one has a chance to understand anything spiritual by ourselves. You say, Jeff, we're okay. I see here to you it's been given. I, I see kind of hinted at that. Flip over 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Let's go there just for a moment. I'm not going to linger long. I'm not going to let myself get bogged down. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Do you know who really knows your mind? Who really knows the real you, the way you really think? It's your spirit. Your spirit knows the way you really think. This is what Paul is teaching. Who really knows the thoughts of God? God's Holy Spirit. God's Spirit knows the real thoughts of God. Guess what? We have God's Spirit. We being Christians. Verse 12. Why are we giving God's Spirit? Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words. So everybody hang with it. So this is getting confusing. I ask the Lord to teach you. Now we, believers, have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. We've got the very Holy Spirit. If you want to look back at verse 11, that's where he was saying what I said a while ago. No one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Well, guess what? We have the Spirit of God. We've received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. Why do we have to have the Holy Spirit? That we might understand the things freely given to us by God. What are these free things that are given to mankind? Paul says we have the Holy Spirit so that we can understand the free things from God. And he says we, I believe they're the apostles, we impart this wisdom... We impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, 
interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Why is that so important? Verse 14 is why I read this text. The natural person, that's all of us as we're born in this world, natural, unsaved, you by yourself, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him, and he is not able. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. So that's where I get the idea, oh, you want to know why the crowd did not accept and perceive truth? Because they couldn't apart from the gift of God. Back to Matthew 13. Again, look at verse 11. Very quickly, verse 11. You want to know why I'm speaking to them in parables? Because to you it has been given. Guys, I need to be a little more blunt. Why do you speak to them in parables? Verse 13, because they're blind. Verse 15... They've closed their eyes, and it's a judgment against them. Do you catch? This is his first answer. D.A. Carson, this is Jesus' first answer because it's not given to them. Carson writes the following six or seven words. I shortened it because here's the essence. He says, Jesus' answer cannot legitimately be softened. It cannot legitimately be softened. Carson, why are you writing that? Because our human nature wants to soften that. You want to know why they're getting parables and not straight truth? Because it's been given to you, it's not been given to them. Like, no, no, I don't like that. He says, you can't soften the answer. It is what it is. I believe there is contained in this text a subtle rebuke that is to all of us in this room, all of us. You say, well, I'm a Christian. Here's the rebuke. It's a gift. It's given to you. No one needs to assume, no one needs to assume that God owes spiritual light, spiritual perception to you or to anyone. God doesn't owe it to anyone. He doesn't have to do it. He said, Jeff, I, I don't know that I, I agree with that. I don't think I, I like that. Anyone who ever understands the scripture and ever sees the light that the Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to shine on Jesus so much so that it gives you faith in Jesus. If you ever do that, you're, that light is only you receiving unearned grace. It is totally unearned grace. Here's the baseline. You say, Jeff, I'm telling you, I really don't like this. I'm not coming back next week. All right, let me give you the baseline. Here's the baseline. Our sin is a lot worse than we think. Our sin warrants God to let us live and let us die and let us wake up in hell. That, that's the baseline. Listen, if even one, if God saves one person, then that's one person above the baseline that we deserve. And I know we don't like that. And I remember when the Lord first started opening this up to my eyes, and I didn't like it, and I fought it, and all of a sudden... It's there, and it's there, and it's there. And so I was like, this is everywhere. I, I literally thought this morning, boy, I just wonder if somebody tunes in today, and if they do, they're going to think, that guy goes and looks for these texts. <laughs> I promise you I don't. We're just working our way through the Word of God. They will come up. You cannot escape them. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 2, a familiar text. I'm going to just make a quick point I've made several times before. Ephesians chapter 2. This is important. It needs said. Verse 2. Ephesians 2 verse 8. 
You say, oh, Jeff, I can quote these. Great. Look at Ephesians 2, verse 8. Watch it carefully. For by grace, that's a gift, it's free. For by grace you have been saved through faith. For by grace, there's one, you have been saved, there's two, through faith. God gives salvation for free. The gift is salvation. It comes by His grace, free, but it has to be received by faith. If you do not put your faith in Christ, you will not get saved. You will not get saved. You must put your, you must put your faith in Jesus totally. It isn't about moving your vocal cords. It's not about talking to me. It's not about signing a piece of paper. You must hear that, understand it, and you must trust Christ. But here's what we have. We have grace, saved, faith. Look at verse 8 continues. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. So here's the question. Grace, one. Save, two. Faith, three. This, not your own doing. It. What is this and it? What's not your own doing? What is the gift of God? What is it that's not a result of works? What is it that we cannot boast in? And most of us in the room are saying, well, for by grace you've been saved through faith. We have these three concepts. And this, not your own doing, it. So what does this and it point to? Guys, I believe it points to all three things. The grace is not a result of works. You can't work for grace. And you can't boast about grace. Watch. Salvation, being saved. You don't get saved by working. And you sure don't boast about being saved if you didn't do anything to get it. But again, to be fair, the word faith, that is not your own doing. You say, no, no, no. The reason I got saved and they didn't, I believed. I'm better than them. I had faith and they didn't. No, you got a gift. Faith is part of the gift. The very faith to believe is coming from God. You didn't work it up. You can't boast about it. Oh, I can boast about my faith. If you think you can boast, you're not born again. The very gift of faith is part of the gift. It is grace and it is salvation, but faith. And it's the faith. You can't get saved without faith. You have to have faith, but God has to give us faith. Why? Verse number one says we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead things do not have faith. God had to give us the faith. Verse one and five, we're dead. Did we get that note? Part of the grace of God to those who are really saved is faith itself, which comes by hearing. Saved people hear the gospel, and those who end up getting saved are not just the ones who hear. A lot of people don't even hear the gospel. God helps us by letting 2 billion people have never heard the gospel. That's why we're going to be collecting for Lottie Moon and Samaritan's Purse. That's why we're doing this. Saving faith is to, under, to hear the gospel and understand it. Actually, that makes sense. And then you accept it. I accept it as true. And then ultimately, you put your faith and trust in Christ because of 
the gospel because you've accepted it and the Holy Spirit helps you to understand it and he does it to such a deep level you actually put your faith and trust in Christ someone you've never even seen and then you go to heaven guys that kind of faith is a gift it's not something you work up one more passage he says Jeff I'm still I don't I don't like it I, I don't know that I'm ready to accept that I think that maybe it's just you doing some mental gymnastics with the scriptures up there go to Mark chapter 4 flip over to Mark chapter 4 very quickly This is Mark's version of the same thing we're studying in Matthew 13. His is more concise, but if you're struggling with Matthew 13, then I dare you to go home and churn this over and over and over and over. I dare you to go home. You say, just let the Bible say what it says and just go home and deal with these three verses. Mark chapter 4, verse 10. Look what the Bible says. Mark's version says, when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. Okay, yeah, sounds like what happened there, verse 10 in the other chapter. He said to them, now watch it, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. Do you see the next two words? So that. Literally, it means in order that. Why did he give them parables? Everything to them is given in parables. So that. They may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Why do you give them parables? So that when they kind of see, they wouldn't really perceive, when they kind of hear, they wouldn't really understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. I challenge you to go home and focus on those last seven words, lest they should turn and be forgiven would you write this note we all admit that people respond differently to the word of God to God's truth Mark chapter 4 dares to say why we respond differently to the word of God again baseline here's the baseline we are all in spiritual darkness all are in spiritual darkness but God chose to give enlightenment to some while sovereignly choosing to withhold enlightenment and leave others in darkness. I say it again. We're all in spiritual darkness. We all deserve hell. We're all walk, walking in the course of this world. We're all following the prince of the power of the air, Satan, according to Ephesians chapter 2, 1, 1 2, 3. We're all on this same course, but God gives enlightenment to some, but he sovereignly chooses to leave others in darkness. And you say, Jeff, why is that? I don't have time to go to Romans 8, 9, and Ephesians 1, but the answers lie in that. Can I just say this? It's his free prerogative. You say, Jeff, he can't do that. God can't do that. Really? Are you going to stand in front of God and say you can't? Everybody catch what I'm about to say. If you're going to try to tell God what he can and can't do, then the next time you're in, in McDonald's in the drive-thru and you're feeling really, really generous and you do an act of generosity and you tell the person, hey, listen, I want to pay for mine. I don't know who these people are behind me. Go ahead and I'm going to pay for theirs too. Don't do that unless you're going to get everybody in line. You need to buy everybody. If there's 15 cars, go to Chick-fil-A. They always have longer lines. You say, I'm going I'm to do a random act of kindness. I'm going to buy the car behind me. No, 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 don't you buy theirs. You buy everybody's. You can't buy just one. You say, I can do what I want. It's my money. God 
owes no one anything. Anybody who gets saved is above the baseline that we deserve. It is all grace. Carson adds the following. I'm going to very quickly hit the last point. Carson adds one more thing. I want you to catch it. He said, Jeff, I'm struggling. I'm getting ready to tell you why we're struggling. He writes, quote, biblical writers in both the Old Testament and the New Testament have, on the whole, fewer problems about the tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility than do many moderns. They didn't struggle with it in the Bible. They just lived it. He then says, so wait a minute. If God does that, then it's not their fault. Oh, it is their fault. But God's... I don't think God's doing it. It's, it's, it's all our fault. And if they don't and I do, it's because I'm better than them and I was smarter and I had faith and they didn't. You need to get off of that cliff. Carson says the places this, he says this, talking about particularly Mark 4, places the responsibility for the divine rejection of those who fail to become disciples on their own shoulders while also guaranteeing that none of what is taking place stands outside God's control and plan. Who's responsible? They are. And yet all of that is part of God's control and plan. And this is a humbling doctrine. This is not an arrogant. Look at us. We are the whatever. You better get off of that cliff. That's the sign of someone who hasn't tasted grace. Carson says modern struggle with it. The biblical writers didn't struggle with it nearly as much. Why is that? I'm going to tell you why. I promise you. Here's why. In America today, we have made God, we've morphed him into kind of like a Santa Claus figure. And he has to meet our standards of fairness. And if he doesn't, oh yeah? Well, then I'm not going to believe in you. Okay. Try that. It will not go well for you. You better get to the point. You stop inventing a God that I can't imagine him doing that. Start letting God be God and get on board with what God says and let it impact you. And just, okay, Lord, I might not even like it. But I believe it. I will not close my eyes to this truth. I will not have a heart that is full of my own doctrine. I want your truth. Number four, lastly. Let's go quickly. Parables were a blessing to some. They were a judgment, but they were a blessing. And they were a display of God's sovereignty, but they sure are a blessing. So, Jeff, where's that in the text? Verse 12. For to the one who has, more will be given. And he'll have an abundance. Watch it again. Why are you teaching them in parables? Because the one who has is going to be given even more and he'll have an abundance. Could I propose to you, watch, everybody watch this. The one who has is the one who has more truth. So the person, the Lord's saying, the one who has more truth is going to be given even more truth. How is he going to give us more truth? Well, there's a lady on my right side. Thank you. You are tuned in. I know it is 1209, but there's a lady on my right side and she is just locked in. That's a... Makes me think she's a believer. Um, I'm sorry to single one person out. Several of you are the same way. I see a person on, on a man in this section here toward the back, just, just, just following along with everything that's being said. He says, to the one who has, I believe, has the truth, they're going to get more. I believe what Christ is saying is the parables themselves are a way I'm going to give those who have truth even more truth. 
You say, hold on, Jeff. I thought parables were given to kind of conceal the truth to those who have not treated God's truth properly in the past. Right. The same parable conceals truth to some, and it reveals even more truth to other people. I'm going to propose that what verse 12 is saying is the parables themselves are the means that God gives us more truth than if we didn't have the parable. We're going to get more truth through the parable. Write this down. Parables make truths even more understandable and even more memorable. I'm coming down the home stretch, I promise. I see the clock. I'll be done in a moment. So parables help us. William Barclay writes the following. Again, I, didn't, I never endorse all that these people say, and they surely wouldn't endorse everything I say, and they forgot more than I know. Barclay writes, there are very few people, so we're talking about why parables. Catch it. There are very few people who can grasp and understand abstract ideas. If you had to say, right, I've got a little child, and I need to explain to them love. I need to explain electricity. I need to explain faith. You're like, uh, yeah. Barclay says, we grasp, we have a hard time grasping and understanding abstract ideas. He says, most people think in pictures. Here's an example. He doesn't use love, electricity, or faith. He uses this one. He says, we could for long enough try to put into words what beauty is. Beauty. But at the end of it, no one be, would be very much the wiser. We could try. He says, but if we can point at someone and say that. You see those people over there? See those dozen people? You see the one wearing the one? Yeah. That's a beautiful person. Oh, he says, if we can do that, then no more description is needed. He adds, if a man wishes to teach people about things which they do not understand, he must begin from things which they do understand. Raise your hand real quick. I, I literally, I'm doing a little research right here. Raise your hand if you've ever had training in the exchange gospel presentation system. Would you raise your hand? I know quite a few, quite a few of you have. Do you know one of the best things about this gospel presentation system is all of the illustrations? How in the world do you get across a concept like the universal, the universality of sin? Where everybody, yeah, but if I'm better than them, no, 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 everybody's sin. It uses this illustration of a 30-foot flagpole, and if everybody tries to jump up and touch the flagpole, who, who touches the top? Well, nobody. You may jump higher than me, and I may jump higher than someone else, but none of us hit the top of the flag. Simple. How in the world do you get across the concept of God's justice? It has an illustration, a great illustration about an earthly judge, which if you hear the description, you're like, he, has, he can't just let the case go. He has to punish the, offended, the offending person. Well, then God has to punish offending sin. He has to. It has a whole illustration there that is wonderful there. Justification. It gives us this thing over here. Literally, we're supposed to walk through with someone. Here's our record. We're, li we're liars. We're stealers. We're blasphemers. We, we, we are abandoned and alienated from God. Over here is Christ's record. He's holy and just and righteous and perfect. And he has access to God and he's free to live with God forever. On the cross, he takes all our sin, cross out our name, put his name. He takes all our sin so that we end up being holy and righteous 
and accepted by God and free to live with God forever. An exchange had to take place. It uses these other, here's the big one. How do you get across faith? If you've ever heard us talk about Blondine and his wheelbarrow, I love that. Used it just two weeks ago with someone. We have these two chairs side by side, simple illustration. If salvation is like this pen, you can't touch it. But ultimately, God is offering everybody here this morning salvation. What do you have to do to get it? You have to receive it. It's free. You don't have to do anything. You don't even have to put out your arm because you can't. This is a pen. That's not really salvation. If it were salvation, God is holding it out to you today. But in your soul and spirit, you have to. Well, I take it then. Then take it. It's full of these illustrations. Why? To make that which we don't know simple. So I close. I'm telling you, I'm, I'm not going to do like a, a long invitation. Today is leading to the next few weeks. Why are we going to study parables? Because there's some truths there that's going to impact. Do you guys know? Let me, I wrote this. Some people are impacted more by a doctrinal picture and story than they are impacted by a doctrinal statement. The best parable of all is what? The two words, Luke chapter 15, I think. The what, son? It's the best one of them all. If you've ever got a hold of that, you don't need a lot of doctrinal statements. Just pow. Verse 16, look at it and we're done. Jesus says, I use parables for them because they're blind. It's a judgment because they've refused the truth. It's a sign, a display of God's sovereignty because they can't. They have an inability to understand the truth. But he also says it's a blessing. Those who do have the truth are going to get more truth by studying the parables. But verse 16, blessed are your eyes, you apostles, for they see and your ears, for they hear. Truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it. And to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Christ says, I want to, apostles, let me give you two reasons you're blessed. You should be happy. You are the fortunate. You guys have the good life. You know why? Your eyes, you've been given spiritual perception. Not only are you given an ability, you see more than anybody has ever seen before. Did the Old Testament prophets, did they have spiritual perception? Yes or no? Yes or no? Yes. Did the Old Testament righteous people, did they have spiritual perception? Yes. So then they're kind of even. Guys, what he's saying is, apostles, you have an even greater blessing. You are shown more than the Old Testament apostles. Today, the Old Testament apostles are in the same heaven with the, I'm sorry, the New Testament apostles are in the same heaven with the Old Testament prophets. But while on earth, the prophets were never shown the things that the apostles were shown. But here's my point. Us this morning... Most of you have a more complete theology than the Old Testament prophets had. I'm not here to puff you up, but you have a more. I'm literally, I could go, I'll guarantee you, I can go point to people. You, you say, well, I don't really. Uh, because you have the New Testament, you have a more complete theology than Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel. And on the list. You say, how is that possible? Because God showed these apostles even more things, and they wrote it down and passed it on to us, and we have the very Holy Spirit of God that has taught that to us. Here's my final question. What are you doing with all of these blessings? What are you doing with it? Would you bow your heads just for a moment, close your eyes. I'm going to pray. This is going to lead us, Lord willing, into studying the, the parable of the sower next week.
Jesus says in verse 9, he who has ears, let him hear. So before we pray, Christian, can I challenge you? Hear, really hear the word of God. Really process it. Really perceive. Ask the Holy Spirit to teach you. I know this guy that preaches here preaches a long time, but those people stood and heard a long message that day. They stood to hear it. And so really lock in and focus and and don't just have divided hearing. Don't just close your eyes to what's not quite interesting or to what you don't like. Ask the Lord and say, Lord, I'm going to obey what you show me. Would you please show me more truth? And so I've got to ask you, where do you fit? Do you approach God's word, whether it be in here on Sundays, here on Wednesdays, or whether it be at home through the week? Guys, do you as a Christian, can you say, very imperfectly, but I do approach the word of God with desire and with faith and with an intention to put it into my life in obedience. If you do, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. You will be given more and more, and you will have an abundance. If that is you, Christian, do this right now. In your own heart, between you and the Lord, would you say, Lord, thank you for the grace of faith and understanding? Because you didn't come up with that. Thank him for it. And then as you're praying, ask the Lord to give us more in the days ahead as we study these eight parables in Matthew chapter 13. Father, I pray for this group that we will not be content with our version of truth. And Lord, I know today some folks maybe for the first time or for the third or fourth time but maybe in a new way this morning got hit with something about you that is startling to them. I understand that. And so, Lord, I pray that we would not close our eyes to the truth, but, Lord, that we would let your word reign supreme in the authority of how we will believe and what our doctrine will be. Lord, I pray that you will help me and anyone who preaches here to rightly divide your word. I pray that your Holy Spirit would make it clear in the studying, clear in the teaching and preaching, and then clear in the hearing. But, Lord, may it result in us having our lives changed. I pray for this group. May we have our lives changed because of your word. And then we will have sanctification as we are given more and more insight, which creates more and more desire and more and more faith and more and more obedience. And we make the impact in this community and in this world that you would have us to do. And then, Lord, I close by praying, not even a gospel message today, but, Lord, I think you're going to, I think you're getting ready to do that, a blended style of preaching in the weeks to come. Lord, I pray for anyone who needs to have those dominoes at the end of verse 15 take place in their life. Lord, help them. They, They are reliant upon you. They cannot just work it up. Lord, I pray that you would let them truly hear, truly see, and understand to such a degree that they turn from their old way of thinking about their sin, turn from their old way of thinking that they're good enough, and, Lord, turn in their way of thinking that Christ is not sufficient to pay for their sin. Lord, may they turn in faith to receive your word, your gospel, because they understand it so deeply. And then ultimately, Lord, you will heal them, and they will be forgiven. Lord, I pray that in Christ's name.